Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Turn then to 2 Samuel. Uh, You'll see the Bible reading printed, 2 Samuel chapter 24. We've come this evening uh, to the very end of 2 Samuel. It's the kind of book when you begin it, you wonder if you'll ever reach the end. And here we are already. Somebody said to me this week, reading ahead, they said, I think this is the most difficult chapter in the whole of 2 Samuel. So see what you think as we read together. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Count them. Count your people. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. While the eyes of my lord the king still see it, but why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. And so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king, In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 
And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take up and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Well, job description, leader needed for God's people. Applicants, Samuel, Saul, and David. Here's the question, how have they done? All the way through 1st and 2nd Samuel, how have those men done? Here we are this evening, like I said, at the end of two series. Some of you were with us way back in the day when we did 1st Samuel, and now we've just recently done 2nd Samuel. When we did 1st Samuel, we called it longing for a leader. 2nd Samuel, we've called your kingdom come. And we've moved all the way through to the end. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel actually used to be one big book. And yet now we have it in our Bibles in two parts. And if you were to take your Bible and hold the pages of 1 and 2 Samuel together, if you were to put them together in one go, you would have felt really daunted, thinking, how are we ever going to make it to the end of this? It's like picking up Lord of the Rings trilogy, isn't it? Will I ever get to the end? And over the years, as we've worked our way through this, we have seen, haven't we, how God weaves His grace and goodness and glory into the fabric of the world by giving us stories. What One theologian has even written a book called, He Gave Us Stories. Friends, never forget that. The Bible is God telling His people to pull up a chair, to come close, to sit down and listen. Just like a child begging a parent for a story. Children love stories, don't they? And God, our Heavenly Father in His goodness, has given us stories. 
really important. Leader needed for God's people. And a TARDIS drops down from heaven and outsteps a perfect leader. Ta-da! No. It's not what happens, is it? God gives us texture. He gives us stories that have depth and background and foreground. He gives us light and shade with major and minor key throughout it. There are villains and heroes and tragedy and comedy and with everything in his world that makes life awesome and agonizing. It's all here in Second Samuel. Longing for a leader. Longing. That's an emotional word, isn't it? Longing. And a leader. Oh, to have a leader. What makes a leader? What, what do you want in a leader? And here's what happens in these two great books. The desire for a leader becomes this question. Who will be king? Who will be in charge? And will the king we have be enough for us? I know I've told you many times that first sermon series that we called Longing for a Leader. I've told you that in our house years ago, that sermon series, it, it got renamed in, only, in the way that only a family can do to their, their preacher, pastor, father. Our family renamed it Longing for a Breather. And so I told my long-suffering family this week, I said, you won't believe it, we've finally come to the end of looking for a leader. And we found him. And somebody in the family quipped back to me straight away, well, we found him and it turns out he's not up to much, right? It's true, isn't it? What did you make of David here? The man after God's own heart at the end of the story. And that's why I want to finish our time in these wonderful books with the title that you have printed on your order of service for tonight's sermon. I want to finish with that title ringing in your ears and reverberating in your heart. Longing for a leader needs to become, friends, longing for a savior. Longing for a savior. The, these books, 1 Samuel, right back at the beginning, they begin with longing in Hannah's prayer, longing for a leader. Do you remember her words? Listen to this. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. That that's what she prayed. That's what she longed for. Lord, give strength to the king. It's what she wanted. We need a king to rule over us. But now the story ends. And after we've been up close and personal with this king for a long time. Well, what do you think of him? The book ends with us longing, doesn't it? Not for a king anymore, not just any king. It, it, it ends with us saying, what king can possibly save us? What king can save us? We don't just need a king. We need a savior. Do you know why? When Hannah prayed those words, the Lord will give strength to his king. Do you know what she prayed in the sentence immediately before that? Listen to this. She prayed this. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. In other words, Hannah is saying, judgment on them out there the ends of the earth, but to us, God's people in the King's salvation. So friends, here is the big question at the end of Second Samuel. What 
happens when it is the king himself who deserves judgment. Do you see it? The Lord will judge the nations, the ends of the earth, but he will give strength to his king. What happens when the king is one of the people who deserves to be top of the pile for judgment? What happens at that moment to the justice of God's rule? Does God turn a blind eye because it's the king? I think this is a really sad end. My my friend is right in saying it is one of the most difficult chapters. It's one of the saddest chapters. A sad ending to the Chronicles of Samuel. This is not a happy ever ending, is it? I, I, I think one of the things that I've never really quite appreciated until this series working through it is that David never really recovers, does he, from his affair with Bathsheba? The, the murder of her husband. From that moment onward, we've watched him, haven't we, kind of limping along to the end. There are high points, yes, definitely, but he is a diminished king. He's yesterday's man in many respects. And, and it's a perplexing end to the book because of all the chapters in the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel, this chapter raises more questions than it answers. So friends, if this evening you're looking for a neat and tidy end, to 2 Samuel. If you're looking for a neat and tidy sermon for your summer sermon series, this isn't it. Let me show you some of the perplexity in the chapter. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Answer, we don't know. We're not told why the Lord is angry in this chapter. What about this problem? Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So how does the Lord inciting David against Israel so that he seems to be counting the nation at the Lord's bidding? But then look at verse 10. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. How can both of those things be right. First Chronicles helps a little bit. First Chronicles 21, it takes the same story and looks at it from a different angle. It says that Satan incited David against the people. But putting those two things together is difficult, isn't it? Here's another problem. Why is the census sinful? Counting your people isn't bad. It's useful for governance. It happens in other places in the Bible where it's commended and it's not wrong to do. But David says, verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. This census is senseless and sinful. We don't know why. I think there's probably a hint of it in verse 9. Do you notice Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. I think that's a hint. This is all to do with size of army and strength. David wants to know, again, 1 Chronicles chapter 27, Looking at the same incident, David seems to want Joab to include in the count men below the age of 20. So not just the size of army, but the potential size of army. David is putting at the end of his life his strength and hope in all the wrong places. One commentator says this, perhaps 
David wanted to know his likely military capability for the coming years. Such action, however, was a denial of God's promise to multiply Israel like the stars of the sky. David's human planning is replacing divine providence, divine promise. Perhaps, makes sense to me. This is David going it alone, but we don't know. But we do know this. Verse 10, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We don't know what exactly is sinful, why it is sinful. We simply know that it is. Brothers and sisters, here we are again at the end of this book. Here we are again and again. It's as if the writer is just trying to bang it into our heads at the end of the book if we haven't got it yet. If you are longing for a leader, this isn't him. This isn't him. This isn't the one you're really looking for. Not the one you're needing. Because look at him. This leader needs saving. Just like you. Just like me. He is a great man. A good man. A man after God's heart. He is a broken man. A failing man. A sinful man. He is just a man. Many of you I know have followed the news this past week. We've gone from uh, perplexity to shock, haven't we? Immense disappointment. Uh, the, 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 the mainline news this week of the pre- presenter, television presenter accused of misdemeanor, seriously inappropriate behavior. I, I wonder this week if you find yourself, when, when the news broke, you find yourself thinking, really? H- him? Surely not. No, there, there must be some mistake. Not, not him. A few days after it, I, w- I was watching Douglas Murray, uh, the cultural commentator, not known for being shy and beating around the bush. Douglas Murray speaking about it on Piers Morgan's show, and he said this. He said, Douglas Murray talked about it for ages, and then he said, look, here, here's the very heart of it. Look, men are idiots. All men are idiots, he said. And friends, that is true, isn't it? It, it? it may yet turn out in that case that we need to apply it to that man. It may turn out in time we need to apply it to his employers for what they have done to him, perhaps. But we need to add to Douglas Murray, don't we? We need to say, women are idiots. All women are idiots. Sure, women are often idiots in a very different way from men. But the point is, people are idiots. People are idiots. Friends, it is not leading we need. It is not leading we need. It is saving. It is rescuing. Don't you know that for yourself this evening? It's the thing about Douglas Murray. Every time I watch him, his, his, his intellect, his razor-sharp mind, his power to cut through things with his tongue and I think but where is the compassion the softness the, 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 the saying I am the same as you sin runs through my heart it taints everything I do it's the same for you isn't it sin 
spoils and ruins. The very best that we have, we know that if we touch it and hold it for long enough, it will begin to be tarnished in our hands. We do not touch things and turn them to gold. We spoil them and ruin them. Here it has been all the way through Second Samuel. It spoils the reign of the man after God's heart. You get to chapter 16, you get, you get to the middle of Second Samuel and everything is well, everything is good and then David goes up on the rooftop and it's all downhill from here. And sin is always there ruining the best moments we have and here is David at the end of his life saying to the Lord again, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I think that that leads us to the next really strange feature of the chapter where really bizarrely David kind of gets to choose his punishment from God. I think it's the only place in the Bible where you get this. Verses 12 to 13, God gives him three options. And it's very likely that what is happening here is that each of these options decrease in duration. So each of them gets shorter each time, but they increase in intensity. And David says, well, look, verse 14, option two is out. Fleeing before your foes while they pursue you. Option two is out, verse 14. I do not want to fall into the hands of man. Option two is out, but look, Lord, one or three, I'll let you decide. And what does God send? A pandemic, a plague. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And friends, here is the very heart of this chapter. Here is the heart of it all. This is actually all I want to show us this evening. It's very beautiful. It's the heart of it. In all its strangeness, there is a very beautiful thing to see. Verse 15 is the heart of the chapter. It's wrath inflicted. Wrath inflicted. Look at it. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. From the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. But now notice either side of verse 14. Either side of verse 14, wrath in the middle, but there is something on either side that is the same. Verse 14, mercy. Verse 16, mercy. Okay, so keep 15 in the middle. Verse 14 is mercy trusted. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. Verse 15, mer mercy inflicted. Now verse 16, mercy displayed. Mercy displayed. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working among the people, working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. So some of you know that this is often the way Hebrew thought works. You put the key idea right in the middle and things build up and lead up to it. And then once you get to the middle, they lead out in parallel ways. So just like verse 14 and 16 are about mercy, so too, if you keep working out, verses 10 to 13 mirror verses 17 to 18 and so on. But here's the key thing. Here's what one commentator says. 2 Samuel 24 shows us wrath wrapped in mercy. Wrath wrapped in mercy. 
God's judgment, awful, terrible, but surrounded on every side by God's mercy. See, friends, as we finish this book, the writer is saying to us, God's judgment is real. Every instance of it here is is not something we've left behind in the Old Testament. Forget all of that stuff, never to be experienced again. No, every instance of judgment of sin in the Old Testament is an inbreaking in time of the great end judgment to come. The great day of the Lord in the future that is still ahead of us. Every time you read something like this in chapter 24, it is the writer saying to us, do you get it yet? It is meant to lead you and I to repentance. It's meant to say to you and I, this is what is coming. It's meant to lead us to repentance by showing us what God thinks of our sin. It's how plagues work, isn't it? It's how pandemics work. What was the point of the plagues in Egypt? That The point was to humble Pharaoh, to soften him. To, to, to open his heart towards God. And what did he choose to do instead? Only to harden his heart towards God. Amos chapter 4, I sent you plagues and yet you did not return to me. The book of Revelation chapter 9, plagues on the earth and still you did not repent. Brothers and sisters this evening, every single time you turn on your news and see natural disaster, God is saying, come back to me. Come back to me. Repent. Every pestilence that has ever stalked the earth, it is God saying, repent. Come back to me. Do you remember the Lord Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13? A tower falls on 18 people in Siloam and kills them. And Jesus says to the people, look, do you think this means that the people crushed by the tower were worse sinners than you, worse sinners than anyone else? No, they weren't. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Very important to get that right, isn't it? The death of some is a sign of the impending death of all. Never think that the death of some is a sign that they were more sinful than others, more deserving of judgment than others. No. The death of some is a sign of the impending death of all. Some of us were at a funeral on Friday afternoon. The the tragic loss of Hannah Crilly's father, Mike. Every single time you go to a funeral in that moment, God is placarding in front of us our mortality. He's making us literally stare at it. Every time we lose a loved one, God is reminding us of our own mortality. Do you remember when um, COVID broke out, uh, 2020? I remember seeing a cartoon, Mike Pence, the United States Vice President at the time. Um, I can't remember where it was, New Yorker magazine, I think. had a cartoon mocking Mike Pence for his evangelical faith and his response to the, uh, the coronavirus. It had a picture of him sitting in the Oval Office with his staff team around him, and they were praying about COVID. And the magazine mocked him with the caption underneath, uh, in which Mike Pence gives his advice, we remind everyone, Pence says, that the first events against this outbreak is vigorous handwashing and repentance. And of course, it was poking fun at him, but actually, it is exactly right. 
It's true. Wash your hands and return to God. Come back to Him. Look what David does. Look what David does in verse 14. Does David think God's wrath is the main thing about him? The only thing to say, the greatest thing about him? No. It is wrath wrapped in mercy. God is angry, yes, but He is merciful more. I want to ask you this evening, as we come close to finishing this book, as we come close to finishing this evening, I want to ask you, do you think of God as angry towards you more than you think of Him as merciful towards you? When you think of God, what comes first to your mind? Wrath or mercy? Dale Ralph Davis, who's helped us a lot, hasn't he, through Second Samuel, he has this amazing story. Uh, let, let me just read it to you. He says this, Not long ago, the time that this was printed, the newspapers where I live had a story about an episode at Brookfield Zoo in Illinois. A three-year-old toddler fell 18 feet into an area inhabited by seven gorillas. Now, what do you think happens? Three-year-old toddler falls 18 feet into a gorilla enclosure. The toddler made it out alive, safe and well, completely unharmed. Why? Any of you know this story? I think it was famous at the time, wasn't it? Binti, a seven-year-old female gorilla, picked up the child, cradled him in her arms, and put him down near a door where zookeepers could get to him. And Ralph Davis says, I suppose the story seems amazing to us because we do not usually associate gorillas with kindness. We may be grateful to Binti, but we would prefer not to trust her with another child. And then he says this, I wonder if in our gut level thinking, we don't have a gorilla-like view of God's mercies. We tend to look upon mercy as a divine exception rather than the very essence of the divine character. Not so David. Not so David. Even in his wrath, David knew he was not facing a gorilla God. Oh, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercy is great. Friends, do you see the mercy of God? It is all over this chapter, isn't it? Verse 16, the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel, it is enough. No more. Stop. And it is at that place where the angel stops his hand, the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, it is at that place that David wants to raise an altar to the Lord to lift up sacrifices to him. Because it is at that very place the anger of the Lord has been averted. Alistair Begg, help me on this. Listen to Alistair Begg. He says this, The threshing floor of Aruna is on Mount Moriah the very place where Abraham a thousand years previously was told by God to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. There, 
On that very spot, a thousand years before, on that occasion, the hand of God was stayed and a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, died in the place of the sun. Oh, what a place. This is the very place. A thousand years later, Solomon's temple would be built. The temple, the place where men and women can meet before God and meet with God, repent of their sin and be restored to relationship with Him. That temple mount was only a short distance from the spot a thousand years later where the son of David, the good shepherd, would lay down his life for the sheep. Friends, do you see what David couldn't do? Verse 17. Do you see what he longed to do? He spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but what have these sheep done? Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Maybe you could punish me, God, but not them. No, there there has to be one who is not like you, David, who is sinless. For you deserve judgment and they deserve judgment. You can't do it, David. But one there is who will. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised For our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him. There was no one else, no one else who could save us. Brothers and sisters, isn't it true? Mercy and wrath. Mercy and wrath run all the way through the Scriptures. They run from the beginning to the end, don't they? Like golden threads running right the way through the story. God is angry at sin, angry at sin, yes, but slow to get angry. Slow to anger. But He does get angry, for evil is real and sin is often very great. His people are so often rebellious. But also running through Scripture like a golden thread is God's mercy. He is compassionate. He is overflowing in mercy and grace. It is His nature to show mercy to generation after generation. These two themes, don't they? They run all the way through the Bible storyline until they collide, until they meet, until they kiss in the cross of the Lord Jesus, where in one place God is both merciful and just. It's all there in verse 25, isn't it? Right at the end, David there built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel in the altar at Aruna. Christian people know, don't we, that we are safe with God and we are safe with the Lord Jesus who gave himself up to the plague of death to save us from it. A day of darkness, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Oh, friends, this evening, longing for a Savior. It's what we need, isn't it? We do not fear God's wrath because Christ has borne our sins, paid for our guilt. We go to meet Christ as King and Shepherd and Master and Friend. Oh, may these days in David's life, everything that is good about him, point us to Christ where we see it even more wonderfully. Everything that is wrong and broken and failing about David, may it lead us to Christ. Not just a leader, not just a king.
but a Savior, our Savior. Amen.